friends and colleagues, and welcome to episode 49 of Dermosphere, the podcast by dermatologists, for dermatologists, and for the dermatologically curious. I am one of your hosts. My name is Luke Johnson. I'm a pediatric dermatologist and a general dermatologist with the University of Utah. And my co-host, of course, is... This is Michelle Tarvox. I'm an associate professor of dermatology and dermatopathology at Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center in beautiful, sunny Lubbock, Texas. Every two weeks, Dermosphere comes to your ears with discussions of some of the latest articles published in the field of clinical dermatology so that we can hopefully save you some time from having to flip through journals to figure out what's really floating out there in the Dermosphere, what's worth learning. And today is going to be a special episode full of special guests. That's right. This is a guest episode. Woohoo! I don't know if we've ever had like an episode where we were almost all just guests. Just <laughs> guests. All guests. So in the University of Utah, we have Journal Club pretty routinely, like they do at many academic programs. And a few weeks ago, I was in charge of picking the articles and the residents in our program then read them and discuss them for the program. And the residents kindly agreed to also come on the podcast to discuss the articles. So we've got three residents from the University of Utah today, and we're going to start with... Dr. Mujahid, thanks so much for joining us. Do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah. Thanks, Luke and Michelle. Thanks for having me on. Um, my name is Nisma Mujahid. I am a first-year resident here at University of Utah. Woo! <laughs> um, I got my MD at Boston University, and I have a PhD in pathology, which specifically focuses on cutaneous oncology. That's so, awesome. Yeah, thank you. And the article that you're going to be discussing is from the JID. Yes, it is. The Journal of Investigative Dermatology. It's titled Environmentally Induced Extrinsic Skin Aging, Exposomal Factors and Underlying Mechanisms. So this article, there are a few points that I found really interesting. The first that was that in the past, there were other models for skin aging, which focus on UVB rays penetrating through the epidermis, leading to increased production of um, matrix metalloproteinases by epidermal keratinocytes. But with this previous model, it didn't really explain why we have chronic skin aging um, as the exposures that were being um, proposed here were in self-renewing cells in the epidermis, and these exposures would be transient. So where are the chronic factors that lead to skin aging? Right. So the, if the UV radiation just blasts your epidermal cells. Those get replaced constantly. So mm -hmm. what's the deal with the chronic stuff? Yes, exactly. The article then comes up with a new theory that emphasizes accumulation of macromolecular damages in non-proliferating cells, so cells deeper than the epidermis, so dermis subcutis, um, which persist and are not transient. And in that new theory, what they say is that it's these uh, macromolecular damages that accumulate over years, leading to cellular changes, leading to aging. I won't go too much into this, but my good colleague, um, Dr. Dave Sani, will review that aspect of the paper. Yes, though unfortunately, Dr. Sani had a conflict today, so thanks for the cliffhanger. We'll have to wait for him to <laughs> chime in on another episode, so... Um, Nisma's talking about the first half of this paper today, which I should also say includes authors Gene Crutman and Mark Berneberg and colleagues out of several places, most notably Dusseldorf, Germany. Awesome. Sehr gut. Yes, I agree. <laughs> One of um, the um, concepts this paper discusses is the exposome. Do you want to go into that a little bit, Dr. Mujahid? Yes. Yeah, so basically they defined exposome as all of the external factors that are not ingrained in our, um, in our organ systems that cause changes leading to any sort of further down um, like skin aging 
or other things. So within this article, it particularly focused on exposomes that included air pollution, solar radiation, and then um, briefly touched on, I apologize, this is my pager, I briefly touched on um, climate changes and nutritional uh, factors that may lead to skin aging and how these different factors combined actually are what cause skin aging rather than each one alone. So I thought the idea of the exposome was kind of fun. It's kind of like the opposite of the exome, which is all the stuff inside you that leads to an outcome. The exposome is kind of all the stuff outside you that leads to some kind of outcome. In this case, aging. And um, one of the interesting things they point out about the skin is that the skin gets exposed to a bunch of stuff and can serve a bit as a model for how just organs age in general in the human body. And they basically found that Air pollution was bad, okay, and of course UV radiation was bad. What else? Smoking? Smoking was bad. Yeah, smoking okay, is right? bad. <laughs> and and like you know, maybe glycation. Yeah, yeah, glycation from high high sugar diets, things like that. So they Go talked ahead. about these exposomes, and I the other thing I found really interesting is that they talked about the interaction of these different exposomes. So not only are they showed the relationship between how these interactions can be additive where it worsens skin aging, but then they can also have a negating effect, which was seen for air pollution and ultraviolet light with regards to skin aging. So it's a pretty interesting concept. And I think the data is lacking behind the epidemiologic evidence uh, to explain why exactly uh, these different factors could be negating. And the other thing I thought was really interesting was the evidence for blue light, which is within the visual spectrum. And previously, we thought that these factors within the visual spectrum do not cause um, skin damage. But in this article, there was a uh, case study where the um, they had patients that were exposed to um, blue light, and they were separated into two groups, one with tinted sunscreens, in particular having iron oxides within these tinted sunscreens, and one group that was using um, mechanical or physical sunscreens. And they found that blue light exposure was more likely to induce melasma, um, skin pigmentation in individuals in the physical sunscreen group than the tinted sunscreen. And so they went back and tried to see if wearing makeup without the iron oxides would also have the same effect, and it did not. So it's something particular to these iron oxide molecules that are within the tinted sunscreen, allowing for that protective effect. The other thing is that um, they looked into a study uh, where they used epidermal skin models showing that blue light in these in vitro models showed um, increased oxidative stress, metalloproteinases expressions, and morphological changes that are seen in skin aging. So the data is still pretty early for this, but I think if tinted sunscreens are tolerated by an individual and skin aging is a concern, then transitioning to a tinted sunscreen would not be harmful and actually convince me to also buy my own tinted sunscreen. So um, the only uh, drawback to tinted sunscreens are there are individuals uh, who may have an allergic reaction. And I think there are a couple of case reports out there where not tinted sunscreens, but other cosmetic products have shown an allergic reaction to these iron oxide molecules that are put in. Plus so. there's the issue of it looking weird on me. Like I <laughs> feel like it kind of looks like you're wearing foundation or something. Maybe I just yeah. haven't found the right one. Yeah. yeah. So, um, my favorite, um, and I'm skin type, I would say four to five, um, is the Elta MD tinted sunscreen, the UV clear. But I know that my lighter skin tone friends um, have 
um, endorse the Tizo, Tizo sunscreen? Yeah, Tizo, uh, yeah, it says titanium yeah. zinc oxide and, a, and an iron oxide as well. And it's in like a nice cosmetically elegant like silicone base. Um, I share Luke's problem with things showing up on my skin too, but as a lady, I'm allowed to have makeup on a little bit more <laughs> more generously by society. Um, so I think the Tizo works really well. And the, I like the Alta MD product. Um, some of the tinted sunscreens have a little bit more titanium oxide in there as well, which can give a little bit more of an optical lightening to the color of the zinc oxide. So the iron oxide, so it's not quite so, mm -hmm. um, so different from the baseline skin tone. Um, we actually reviewed an article in episode 30 of Dermosphere Podcast way back in episode 30, Luke, um, that was cutaneous interaction with visible light. What do we know? And it talked about this blue wavelength of light potentially worsening melasma and some of the best strategies for protecting your skin against damage from it or excitation of hyperpigmentation were these sunscreens that involved some iron oxide of some kind. So I'm so glad you brought that up. Yeah, and it would be nice if there were iron oxide sunscreens available that were not tinted, but as far as I can tell, they're... That's the only way they can make them, I suppose, since that's the only way they're around. But in addition to just society, it also would like get on my shirt collars and probably like on my pillows and stuff. So as much that's as true. I don't like the fact that I'm aging, yeah. I'm not sure that I'm willing to bite the Tizo and go mm -hmm. for a tinted sunscreen at this point. <laughs> well, and the color really makes sense when you think about it, because we know that iron oxides are used for cosmetic tattoos that are flesh colored. Mm -hmm. And um, that uh, also leads to a pimpable question. So what happens, Luke, when you hit that iron oxide cosmetic tattoo, which is usually flesh colored with the laser for the first time? Michelle, you're asking me a pimp question when there's a resident right there? Oh, I mean, all right. I, oh, I shall no, initiate okay. her. I'll jump in front of the laser beam for her. All right. Thank you, Luke. Very <laughs> heroic. I believe it oxidizes and turns black. Woo! Good job. Excellent. That's a fun pimping question. Thanks Hello. for taking one for the team, Luke. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> the, um, the good faculty member right there. So I agree. I just found this article really interesting in terms of its basic science and when Dr. Sani is able to join us, hopefully next time or the time after that, he'll talk about the second half of the article. But I thought some of the important takeaways, sort of intellectually and for clinical practice, were the concept of the exposome, which is kind of like that. This iron oxide sunscreen, especially important, as you pointed out, Dr. Mujahid, in Journal Club, for people with darker skin, since they're more prone to melasma, and I suppose for women as well then. Um, and that also the fact that UV radiation and air pollution sort of interact negatively. So the more air pollution, the less UV radiation reaches the skin, which makes sense because there's much smog in the air. And I, I'm a silver lining kind of guy. So sometimes <laughs> here in Salt Lake City, we get these weather phenomena called inversions where it just gets really smoggy and, you know, everybody looks out the window and grumbles. But hey, less UV damage. <laughs> <laughs> I will never look at the inversion the same again. <laughs> Well, thanks for joining us, Dr. Mujahid. I know you're busy and on call, but is there anything else you would like to mention um, since we've got you on the mic here? Um, no, I think that pretty much summarizes the first half of this paper. Thank you guys for having me. I really enjoyed it. Next time, I won't be on call. <laughs> awesome. Right. Well, we'll we appreciate the authenticity of the experience. She is in the trenches, ladies and gentlemen, learning, working hard, taking one for the team. And, you know, we had great team spirit there with with Luke diving in front of that laser beam. So excellent. See you next time. Bye. Take care. So our next guest was going to be one of our other residents named Chloe Eckelum, but she apparently um, is having some technical difficulties. So we'll skip past her article for now, but hopefully look forward to having her next time, perhaps. And I should also point out, of course, to our listeners, we appreciate your understanding of the different, uh, sound setups that everybody's got going on. Um, but our next guest guest is another one of our residents from the University of Utah, Dr. Margaret Cox. Dr. Cox, thanks for joining us. Hi, yeah, thanks for having me. Exciting. Do you want to introduce yourself? <laughs> sure, yeah, I am a PGY3 resident in uh, dermatology. I'm from Toronto originally uh, and found myself out here in sweet Salt Lake City having a blast. And you're also a board-certified pathologist. Yeah, yeah, there's that part of my life that happened at some point. True, yes, I and did. don't you have a PhD in English or something? History, history and philosophy of science, actually. 
Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, you are I... shockingly accomplished. <laughs> I've had many past lives. <laughs> well, um, you will, I think, are going to be talking to us about an article out of JAMA Dermatology, which is a fun little case report. Yeah, I uh, have the pleasure of talking about this neat little case report that was published in JAMA Dermatology in January 2021. It's by a group out in Washington, D.C. at Georgetown and MedStar Washington Hospital. Uh, and it's about the use of serolimus topically for treating CARP or confluent and reticulated papillomatosis. So this group tried out this new topical treatment for CARP. Uh, as many of you know, uh, this disease is often a chronic disease characterized by velvety brown plaques in a reticular pattern. Um, it is often treated with oral minocycline. Unfortunately, these patients have a chronic course of this with frequent recurrences. So this case looked at a young boy who did have a diagnosis of CARP with some features of acanthosis nigricans. Um, and he had tried treating previously with multiple rounds of minocycline. And he did improve with this treatment, but unfortunately his lesions would recur. And he was kind of sick of taking these antibiotics. So the team out there in Washington, D.C. decided to give him topical tacrolimus 1% off-label cream. Um, and he applied this twice a day for three months and he cleared. Uh, and he was able to remain clear with sort of once or twice weekly application of this 1% serolimus cream. There you go. A new treatment for CARP and possibly for acanthosis nigricans as well. Yeah. That's so amazing because it's such a hard condition to treat. Like we throw a lot of minocycline at it, but I found that to be hypo satisfying in terms of results. What do you think, Luke? I use doxycycline as well. I think it's probably just as effective. It just didn't happen to be the one that was accidentally discovered to work back in the day. But it's true that it maybe works 30 to 70% of the time and the other times, what are you going to do? So that's one reason that I thought this was a good article to discuss. But Dr. Cox... How? How could it possibly work for these conditions? I think the, the thought is that by using this uh, topical serolimus, which is a mTOR inhibitor, so that's a mammalian target of rapamycin inhibitor, uh, by using that medication, you shut down the mTOR complex, and it's thought that, or we know that the mTOR complex is involved in different parts of cell growth, cell proliferation, uh, and as a result of shutting down that complex, you kind of turn off the keratinocytes and you don't get the hyper proliferation of keratinocytes that you see in processes like CARP and AN. I think that makes sense. And Michelle, you got the bell, right? So I do. Are you ready? Serolimus or Cyrolimus. <laughs> I actually don't know how to pronounce it. Also called rapamycin. <laughs> Um, targets the mammalian target of rapamycin. So there are I'm some torn. pretty creative people out there thinking of names for these things, um, which apparently in, is involved in cell proliferation. So inhibit that and maybe there's less proliferation. There was some discussion among the faculty about how one can get Cyrolimus 1% cream. And perhaps eventually one of the answers will be we buy it from the authors of this paper because mm -hmm. there is a conflict of interest disclosure that the senior author is an inventor on a patent um, with the technology described in this article that there's no, I don't, there's no like technology. It's a cream, but right now you have to get Cyrolimus 1% cream compounded. I called one of our, so I actually prescribed this for somebody with acanthosis nigricans, not carp, but this patient described in this article had carp with features of AN, and I figured if I prescribed her tretinoin and hydroquinone together, even with like a good RX card, it was still like 80 to 100 bucks. So how much was Cyrolimus 1% cream? We called one of the local compounding pharmacies, and they said it was going to be $1,500. Mm, and a lot of money. then we called one of the national compounding pharmacies, Chemistry RX. I believe they're based out of Philadelphia, and it was $100. So I told that to the patient, and all I ask in return is that she takes half of her $1,400 savings and send it to me as a finder's fee. <laughs> and this, she's still saving a lot of money, and it's a win-win situation. 
Um, we're not sponsored, of course, but we do, um, in pediatric dermatology, we occasionally find these national compounding pharmacies where we get things like topical sirolimus and topical JAK inhibitors and topical other random stuff that we use for our patients. Chemistry RX is one that we've had good results with. Another one is called Medoz, M-E-D-O-Z. I always said that differently in my head. I said like med dose, like it's trying to say like dose, but yeah, I've had a couple of patients that have had the Janus kinase inhibitors compounded from that pharmacy for different conditions like alopecia areata and stuff. Um, looking over some of the other potential uses for topical rapamycin, of course, one of the first uses they thought of for it topically was with the ill-named adenoma sebaceum, which are neither adenomatous nor are they sebaceous, one of the double misnomers of dermatology. Mm -hmm. um, really those, you know, fibrous papules in the mid-face, those angiofibromas of tuberous sclerosis, and they showed a really impressive improvement in um, just inhibiting the growth of those lesions and actually allowing them to regress. And some people have actually published a little bit about epidermal nevi and rapamycin as well. And I think we had a paper where we discussed its use in um, vascular malformations. It seems mm -hmm. like if they have a prominent lymphatic component, it's helpful. So go Cyrolimus. Um, also, this patient was didn't have any side effects from it, and it tends to be pretty well tolerated. Um, Dr. Cox, yes. appreciate you coming on board to talk about this. Is there anything else you'd like to add since you've got the floor? No, thanks for having me. Good times. Okay. Well, <laughs> thanks for taking time out of your weekend to discuss with us, and hopefully we'll have you on again sometime soon. All right. See you. Bye. So we originally had four residents scheduled, and we're down to two. But do not despair, listeners. We have one other guest who's coming to us all the way from the Netherlands. This is Dr. Beth Morell. Dr. Morell, thanks so much for joining us. Do you want to start by introducing yourself? Oh, hi. Uh, I'm, I'm so happy for this invitation that you and Michelle gave me. Um, I'm a gynecologist in, working in the Netherlands with an interest in pediatric vulvar disease. And um, it was wonderful to hear your podcast where you talked about our uh, uh, systematic review and rewarding to know that medical practitioners in the States uh, f found the information worthwhile. It's well, exactly we the certainly reason. did. Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks. That's exactly the reason was the motivation for the study. You're talking about one that we discussed in episode 46 exactly, called yeah. The Long-Term Clinical Consequences of Juvenile Vulvar Lichen Sclerosis, a Systematic Review, which is published in the JAD. Thank you. And um, that was a problem that we often have with our, our uh, vis uh, office visits. There wasn't enough or there's actually a complete lack of solid information to properly inform the patient's and to answer their questions uh, with evidence. Um, so um, as a clinician, I feel it's important to address these questions that the parents and the child uh, pose. And um, there's still so much research to be done. Um, you reiter re basically reiter reiterated the most important aspects of persistence of disease. Um, and the rationale of uh, maintenance and the HPV vaccination. So, so the three uh, uh, things that I think we should all talk about. And, I'd like um, to talk about the maintenance in particular. Yeah. Um, so tell me about maintenance. I, I admit that I have not emphasized it with my pediatric patients up to yeah. now, but perhaps after this conversation, I'll be convinced That's otherwise. Right. Well, I sort of almost think it's unethical to, uh, to do a randomized trial of maintenance versus not maintenance with the, the evidence we have as larger study, studies in adults, children, they're smaller studies, but still. And I think about the burden of maintenance when you, when you, when, when you consider that we advise uh, the patients to use an ointment, uh, just a protective ointment twice a day. Uh, so if you once or twice a week, you alternate the uh, non-medicinal protective ointment with a medicinal ointment, then you're not really burdening them anymore anyway. And yeah, if the, the evidence points to less scarring and less progression, if you have it, uh, uh, maintenance. And I, I think you as dermatologists better know better than I do that, um, 
you want to avoid trauma and 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 damage skin to the skin and if you wait until it flames up again then there's going to be a, a window where there's going to be more damage and um and you want to avoid that with regard to to skin disease in general and i think even in the long term with uh developing skin cancer like you know from sun exposed part of it is the damage that's being done to the skin so um I would think there's a rationale for maintenance as well, aside from the, the studies in children that show that it does does reap a benefit. So, so I, had a, I had an eight-year-old girl that I just saw the other day in clinic. She had had LSNA. I guess it's maybe just called LS now. Yeah. And she just... cleared with clebatazole. Um, she looks normal and healthy. So what would be your approach in terms of maintenance for a patient like that? Well, I think she should use a daily ointment just to protect her skin because it's, I don't know how it looks now, but it's generally a little bit more fragile than uh, skin that was never affected. And uh, she's going to be bike riding or horseback riding or swimming or anything. And then I would say maybe once a week, if she's absolutely complaint free, then once a week is often enough. But sometimes uh, people will need twice a week maintenance. And what, and, and what sort of medicine for maintenance? Uh, Clobetasol. And the, we don't know enough yet, but, you know, it, uh, there are alternatives. You talked about it in the podcast, too. But um, the studies, the, 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 the bigger studies from Australia um, choose between Clobetasol or a, a lighter, uh, a, hydro, a, a less potent also possible for the maintenance in children. I think adults is a different situation, but you could go down to a less potent uh, steroid. Dr. Merle, I'm so glad that we have your guidance here and your advocacy for these patients. And I think it's such a great concept to put forward the daily use of that protective ointment because that skin becomes a scar in the process of lichen sclerosis. And the day-to-day frictional trauma that occurs to that area by the natural consequence of activity, walking, the activities of childhood, play, things like that can activate the disease as well. And so I think it's a protective both for that sensitive skin, but also potentially against progression. And then that also creates the habit of putting something on the affected area every day so that instituting that maintenance treatment is a little bit simpler and a matter of habit and habit is very powerful. What protective ointments do you like to use? um, uh, I don't know what the, just Vaseline based uh, ointments, we uh, as Cetomacro, Oh, I don't know what the what the names are in in, in America, but it's basically a, a vaseline, not so not an alcohol any no alcohol uh, uh, holding a salve of some kind ointment. Sometimes um, I'll direct patients to use things that are similar to what you might use for a diaper dermatitis. Um, one of our popular ones here in the States is A&D ointment, which is actually made from cod liver oil, but it has vitamins A and vitamins D derived from that cod liver uh-huh. oil, which are both nutritive to the skin. And other times we'll use a zinc oxide paste if there's a lot of protection needed. Yeah. Do you think that those are useful? They, they could be. I, I really defer to my uh, to the dermatologists who know more about it. You don't want to give anything that's going to dry the skin. I mean, these are usually older children who are not don't have any problem with uh, with uh, urine or you know they're not wearing diapers anymore. So you don't want. It's not going to be a moist environment for them. So, but um, I usually defer to the dermatologist to to discuss which ointment is. Uh, is best, but nothing that's going to dry the skin. So I want to make sure we talk about some other stuff besides just yeah. maintenance therapy and pediatric yeah, okay. LSNA, but I do want to point out that I'm conflicted. So I, I believe that there's research yeah. that suggests that it's helpful, but I also want to make sure I pay attention to the psychological burden that I might be putting on patients and their families. If instead of I say, all right, it's gone. There's a chance it might come back. So someone should look there every year. If I say, well, it's gone, but because it can come back, you should do something every day for the rest of your life. And once a week, it should be a medicine instead of an ointment. I feel like that makes people feel like they have a chronic forever disease. But you could formulate it a little bit different, 
recently and say just your skin has become a little bit more sensitive. Um, having gone through this and you want to protect it in that way and you just like a fair skin person will use a, a higher protective factor and and uh, and people like to use it they notice that it's it makes them more comfortable too so I run into this psychological barrier of regular use of a product to treat a condition that is a medical diagnosis, sometimes in the hair loss world. And I try to normalize it for patients. And I think that can be a very um, helpful discussion to have with the family, which is basically just, there are things that you use every day to maintain the health of that area. You brush your teeth every day, you wash your hands every day, um, you put lotion on when your skin is dry. So when I'm talking to my hair loss patients, I say, you know, you need to think of this as another cosmetic product. You don't you don't get the you don't keep the benefit of deodorant every day if you stop using it. You don't keep the benefit of brushing your teeth every day if you stop brushing them. If you want to maintain the health of this area, which needs a little bit more support for you, just make this a daily habit. That's that's then, a good way to formulate it. Yeah, great. And, yeah, and it, and it sort of depathologizes it a little bit to think about exactly. all the other things we do. Like, I mean, we don't all have oral disease because we brush our teeth every day. It's just something that we do to help our stay, ourselves stay healthy. Yeah. Well, I think it's important that I, I, I'd like to uh, get in here in this discussion that uh, especially vulva, but lichen sclerosis in, in general, but vulva specifically should uh, get out of the taboo sphere that we're willing to talk about it. And uh, in adults, it's difficult, but in children too. And, and a lot of uh, clinicians won't see it much in their life, you know, so yeah, you have to be able to recognize it too. Uh, but uh, you have to assure the patients that they can talk about. In that respect, we uh, we have a very close relationship with the special interest group of patients in the Netherlands. Uh, they have, they, uh, or I should say we, because we usually support them also. Once a year, there's a like a conf- congress where they, members of that special interest group get together. And, and uh, the last couple of years, we've had a, spe- a special afternoon for children and and their parents and and I want and we our um, chairman of the special interest group is a, a very talented graphic artist and she made a, a go fish game what for, for children and uh, and we translated it in English because she has good contacts with the special interest group in Britain so um, actually that's available for anyone who wants to use it and I. Um, I don't. I don't know how much she asks, but it, she it, it goes for costs, whatever. They don't make a profit on it. That she just wants to get the message out. Well, we'll try to put a link in the show notes if anyone wants sure. the lichen sclerosis sure. go fish game, and who wouldn't? Yeah. Um, so, who's the target audience for it? Is it people who have it, or people? Yeah, well, it's clinicians. It's, it, it's it, clinicians can use it in the office to explain things to children. Children can use it together we use it at the at, at those meetings with the kids so they can talk about it to each other and they're open up about their problems but we found that the parents love to to play the game too because then that conversation opens up so which that's is, great i mean yeah and i, I wonder mean, if these, uh, that kind of approach could be used for other diseases as well taboo or otherwise yeah well she this uh uh our, our uh, chairman of the lichen sclerosis uh uh, special interest group um, has become chairman for the skin diseases, and she's done something like that for psoriasis as well. She sort of she started with lichen sclerosis, uh, and now she's making it for uh, other skin diseases as well. So it's uh, it's out there and available. But these these I mean the kids really open up. They tell I mean one of the at that our afternoon for children one of the, one of the children told um, the group that she has a little basket at the teacher's desk. She has to uh, use the, uh, the bathroom so that she has her ointment available. And she told her class about it so they know what the problem is and she doesn't get laughed at when she walks to the teacher's desk before she goes to the bathroom. So, I mean, they, uh, and they share the, they exchange their experience and, uh, and I mean, it, it helps the children, but I think it, it, it's good to, to get the information out that way. I love it. Yeah. 
I think that's great to also get the children comfortable to talking with their parents about how they're feeling, because especially in the United States, because we're quite Victorian here in the United States, even though we'd like to pretend we're not. um, There's this kind of cultural tendency not to talk about downstairs issues, you know, and the children are kind of shy and embarrassed about these things. And I think if you're playing with the game and, and talking about, okay, this is the ointment that you used to get better. And, and this is, you know, maybe there's a special character that represents the condition or something. And they can say, you know, I've had a a hard week, or maybe I had a little bit uh, of bleeding and I don't know if it's okay, mom, or something like that. So they can talk to their parent. Yeah, it's uh, true. It's, uh, it makes it, uh, yeah, can be more open about it. Another thing is that, unfortunately, I don't know how it is in the States, but there's still many physicians who don't know that children can get vulvar lichen sclerosis. And unfortunately, there there are cases still coming where children have gone through the whole process of being accused of sexual uh, uh, mishaps and and, uh, sexual abuse when it's only lichen so the that it's important to realize if it's only what you see and it looks like lichen then it's not justifiable to go through the whole uh process but of course there can be lichen and sexual abuse so that the one doesn't rule out the other but the the lichen in itself is not a symptom of abuse and unfortunately there are caretakers and and uh, physicians who don't know that and yeah, heartbreaking. Tra- yeah, traumatic for the parents and stigmatizing for the parents and the child if they have to go through that. Something very eye-opening happened for me actually a couple of years ago where a person who is in the specialty that's more likely to see this, like Gyne and stuff, had a personal family member who had the condition and that person was referred to me. And so, of course, I treated them properly. The person is in good recovery. But I think that that elevated that person's awareness of the condition and the discussion within that person's peer group. Because since that time, I've seen quite a few more patients with the same condition. And, you know, I'm starting to get them earlier in the process because often I'd get them after everything else had been tried. Well, it must be an allergy. Let's have you go to only yeast or whatever. They've been treated for yeast infections 15 times. They've been tested for STDs. Some of them have been patched tested. None of those are bad ideas. But sometimes that delay costs in terms of scarring and loss of normal anatomy. Yeah. Yeah. educating those community physician partners who have as a part of their routine practice, the examination of those areas really, I think is so important. Exactly. Yeah. We, even in, in obstetrics, we often, I would as knowing about lichen sclerosis, I'd see someone and say, wow, you, you know, didn't you know? <laughs> and they'd yeah. never been told. And they'd of course been treated for everything, but the lichen sclerosis in the interim. And then, you know, so that's, um, it's uh, important because that's one of the misconceptions is that it's a disease of older will, postmenopausal women. And people just say, well, it can't be that because it's a child or it's a, a premenopausal adult. And I think you're right with it. The, all the uh, statistics are probably uh, a, a too low a number. of uh, A patient group says one, 1% of the population probably is. I don't know if it's that, but it's a completely different statistic than we usually think of when we say it's often called a rare disease, but I don't know how rare it is really. Well, I don't want to take up too much of your time, Dr. Morell. Is there anything else you'd like to discuss? You have the floor. Well, um, well, I just think it's great that we can interact this way. I think, um, I think it's a important topic to, to bring up and make everyone aware. And I think it's a fantastic platform that you, the two of you are, are, um, so so uh, diligent in getting the message out of uh, so many things. I I think it's. Uh, I hope that uh, that we can uh, communicate and and uh, learn from each other's experience. And I, I wish you all uh, all the luck in the world with your podcast. Also, it's great. You're too yeah. kind. Okay. Well, we'll have to have you back sometime, Dr. Morell. Thanks okay. so much for joining us. Well, if our you. listeners want to learn more about you or your work, would you direct them to anywhere in particular? Um, well, I, I'm uh, doing research now at the Erasmus MC Medical Center in uh, Rotterdam, and um, and um, 
the chairman of the department is uh, Susanna Fussmans, who is uh, my co-author uh, and the correspondent for our article. And um, she uh, she is sort of my contact person to get the the um, message across. And, and but you'll you'll find us there. And uh, and uh, I, any questions that are out there, please send them. Well, okay. thank you so much, and thank hopefully you. we'll see you again soon. Okay, great. Good luck to you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Well, thanks to all of our guests, and you might think that we are done with guests, and we are, unless you consider <laughs> Michelle's singing voice to be a guest, because instead of paying attention when they were all talking, she was busy <laughs> working on the lyrics to this song. All right. Are you ready, Luke? All right, I am so, so ready. This is our Naturaceuticals miniseries theme song. So... I told the derm doctor that nature is my passion. Well said the derm doctor, let's check for interactions. Anticoagulants, horse chestnut muscle flies. Also norepinephrine and with nicotinamide for an extract anticrolumbus will make you sick. And don't take beta blockers with your turmeric. Zinc causes drug absorption to be out of whack. And don't take nitroglycerin when you take knack. Oh, ooh, ee, ooh, ah, ah, ting, ting, <laughs> walla, walla, bing, bing. Ooh, ee, ooh, ah, ting, ting, walla, walla, bing, bing. Woo! <laughs> that was so fun. Yeah, so I was, I was, conso I was composing parody song lyrics for part of the time, but I did also pay attention, and they did some excellent jobs reviewing the use of rapamycin for the treatment of carp and talking about how potentially that you could use some different modalities to treat some complex disorders. So I thought they did a great job. Nice save. So Thank that you. is the theme song that, of course, will probably win the Dermy Award for Best Theme Song. <laughs> uh, but out of this article that we discussed in the last episode, but we only got to half of it because it was so chock full of good information, and we're going to finish it out here. It's called Drug Interactions of Natural Supplements in Dermatology, a Review. Authors include Edward Hadler and Andrea Matterall out of the University of Miami. Wonderful. Yes. Yeah, so we covered the first three drugs in this very well put together paper last time. So last time we discussed um, nicotinic acid, also referred to as nicotinamide, polypodium leucotomos, and turmeric. Today we're going to talk about horse chestnut seed extract, zinc, and N-acetylcysteine, or NAC. So we will start off with that old chestnut, horse chestnut. Da -da -da. Oh, I know. That was terrible. I apologize. Okay, so the extract of the seed contains some bioactive flavonoids, and I love flavonoids because they have a lot of really nice, usually anti-inflammatory activity, sometimes even anti-neoplastic in our bodies. These hey, things that are growing out of the earth. A good idea for your Derm Singer persona, what, what name you should have is Flava Flavonoid. Flava Flavonoid, yes. Here's Flava Flavonoid with a new Dermosphere original. I kind of love that. It writes itself, Luke. It just writes itself. So one of the bioactive flavonoids that horse chestnut seed extract contains is called, um, I'm not sure how to pronounce this. When I looked it up, it said acine, which seemed wrong, or acin, but perhaps that is correct. It's A-E-S-C-I-N-E. And that is a complex of multiple triterpenoid saponins. So it has anti-inflammatory activity. The anti-inflammatory activity can help prevent edema, be decreasing capillary filtration, and also can protect vessel walls by inhibiting hyaluronidase. So you probably would not want a religious horse chestnut consumer to have a vascular occlusion event that might necessitate the use of hyaluronidase in your clinic. So perhaps something we should ask people about. Probably not really materially important, but it is interesting, and it will help you to remember the interaction. Wait, so there is, again? I'm, so, somehow I missed it. That's okay. So horse chestnut has been found to be useful by preventing edema through decreased capillary filtration and also protecting vessel walls by inhibiting hyaluronidase. Inhibits hyaluronidase. Yeah, okay. which I thought was really interesting. I was like, hmm, that's fascinating. So some people have used it as a therapy for venous insufficiency, which can cause pain, itching, edema, discoloration of the legs. Other studies have also shown the efficacy of horse chestnut in the treatment of chronic venous insufficiency. And some studies have shown that it's safe and effective for short-term treatment. So if you have a patient who can't use standard therapy, which would of course include compressive stockings, things like that, you might potentially be able to use horse chestnut as a suitable alternative, especially if their venous insufficiency is mild. There are some known side effects of the drug. Um, and I've had patients complain to me of these side effects. So I believe these are legit. So um, itching, headache, dizziness, leg cramps, oddly enough, nausea, and abdominal pain. So those are all by itself without playing with any other drugs in a complicated way. But 
when horse chestnuts gets into the mix, there are some things we have to be cautious about. There have been um, some concerns about very mild hepatotoxicity. There was a case of increased anticoagulation in a patient with a life-threatening vascular tumor, and they noticed that potentially the compound Esculetin, which is one of the derivatives of these triterpenoid saponins, may potentially have an enhancing effect on the anticoagulant effects of warfarin, which could increase a patient's bleeding risk. And they also found another patient who had an angiomyolipoma who had a life-threatening rupture um, and bleed while on warfarin, who was also taking horse chestnut for venous insufficiency. So they recommend caution when prescribing horse chestnuts to patients taking warfarin, as well as any other medication with anticoagulative properties where the baseline bleeding risk may somewhat be elevated. And so they think that that has to do with increased drug effect, which can slow blood clotting and increase the risk of bleeding. Now, are you ready for the dirty boy of this article, Luke? No, because I want to talk about horse chestnuts a little bit more. Okay, well, let's talk about horse chestnut first. So I, why does it say you can use it in people who can't use compression stockings? Can't you use them both together? You definitely can. I think that they're suggesting that it might be a suitable alternative as a relatively mild management step for patients who just, for one reason or another, can't get compression stockings to work for them. In my experience, there's two big reasons why patients can't use compression stockings and one why many patients don't. So why they can't use it can be either if they have bad arthritis in their hands and have a hard time getting the stockings onto their legs, um, that might be one particular reason. The other one might be that they really do significantly also have arterial disease and that compression actually compromises arterial circulation. Now, the far and vast majority of people who don't wear compression stockings, even though they need to, don't wear them because they find them uncomfortable. So people find them to be hot or they find them to be itchy. I personally try to get my patients to commit to a two-week trial. I'm like, just try it for two weeks, every day for two weeks, and pay attention to how your legs feel at the end of the day. Because a lot of my patients will realize that their legs feel less achy, they have less pain and swelling, and they feel more energetic, actually, if they can just get over that hurdle of wearing the compression stockings. But I do practice in Texas, and I have some sympathy for people. It is hot here sometimes, and it can be harder to wear the compression stockings in those moments. That being said, I wear them year round. I like that. And I also like the reminder that you shouldn't use compression stockings in people who have arterial disease. That seems bell worthy. It is. So if you can't fill a pulse, um, maybe reach for the chestnut, except people with arterial disease are more likely to also be on some of these blood thinning medicines. So I haven't used horse chestnut just because I'm a little bit nervous because my adult patients who have these issues often have a bunch of comorbidities and I'm worried that they'll be on some drug that thins their blood or something and I'm just not aware of it. But maybe I need to just figure myself out and go ahead and use it in people who would be good candidates. Yeah, there are some patients that I have on um, the sort of supplement that has the horse chestnut for, for venous insufficiency or for... Um, just having varicosities. Sometimes patients that I'm working on with sclerotherapy or other um, mediators, there's a supplement called um, Nature's Way Leg Veins. Um, there's another one that has other herbs and spices in there that probably increases the risk for interactions. So I think probably just the single um, ingredient one would potentially be preferable, especially if the patient has any kind of medical complication, which can, can be the case. But it does seem to really make a difference for some people. It is sold over the counter. Um, it is promoted for circulation, so it's pretty clear what it's for. But definitely some patients will have that stomach upset or the headache seem to be the treatment limiting side effects for this particular supplement. All right, now I'm ready to talk about bad boys. Now you're ready for the bad boy of natural dermatology, which surprises me because, you know, when you think about zinc, when you think about zinc, you think it's just zinc. What problems can it cause? Right, but Dr. It actually, Seuss, I think, wrote about I, that. Exactly. When you think about zinc, sometimes zinc can stink because sometimes zinc stinks by messing up things. I don't know. All right, so that let's was talk about zinc. the top of your head as far as I could tell. That was pretty good. Yeah, that was just extemporaneous poetry. So zinc is an essential mineral that's present in food and dairy supplements and over-the-counter drugs and cold lozenges and most of the little kind of herbal preparations people take around the cold and flu season to sort of help improve immune function. And so a lot of people can use it for that reason. They also can use it for anti-inflammatory benefits. It's helpful with acne. There's actually a receptor for zinc on the hair follicle. And so some people use zinc to mediate follicular diseases such as acne or hydrogenitis subvertiva. Yeah, you um, mentioned a product that you sometimes use in those patients. Yes, I, I actually really do like, so it's, I, again, we are not sponsored. We don't have any, react, any kind of contracts with anybody, but I like 
um, Cetaphil foaming acne wash has zinc sulfate in it. And it's well tolerated by most people. And if they're very sensitive and they can't tolerate benzoyl peroxide or salicylic acid, most of the patients can tolerate that Cetaphil foaming acne wash that has the zinc sulfate in it. And it's just a way to get zinc on the skin in a way that's relatively easy to find. So few documented side effects just of zinc, unless you take it at high doses, and that can cause nausea, abdominal cramping, vomiting, and diarrhea. This can dis this can especially be true if you're taking it in, co in com combination with a B complex, which happens frequently with hair supplements. So if you have a hair loss supplement that has zinc and a B vitamin complex, frequently that's going to upset people's stomach if they take it on an empty stomach. So um, there's a hair loss supplement I like sometimes called Biotin Forte. It is a vegetarian supplement and it is made pretty reliably. It has zinc as well as Biotin, which I think is, you know, we're kind of starting to wonder how effective that is for most hair loss, but other things also that are necessary for hair regrowth and some B-complex. And it's a good supplement. It's relatively reasonably priced, but if you take it on an empty stomach, you will hate me is what I tell my patients. So I just give them that information so that hopefully they remember not to take it on an empty stomach. So those are kind of its, its own sort of properties all by itself, but there are a lot of interactions with zinc. Um, so a lot of antibiotics, quinolone, tetracycline antibiotics, they interact with zinc to inhibit absorption of both things. So um, we know that people tell you not to take um, tetracycline family antibiotics with calcium because that positive ion grabs onto and is held onto the tetracycline molecule and then neither one of them absorbs. Similar things can happen with quinolones. So antibiotics together with zinc can be problematic because it inhibits the absorption of the medicine. So if a person is actually on an antibiotic, that they actually need to get better from an illness and somebody's trying to be kind of homeopath and go, oh, I'll also take zinc, they may actually be accidentally taking away the effectiveness of both of those things by taking them together. And so I think that that is something for people to think about. Um, also, sometimes people might want to use zinc with the tetracycline family antibiotic because they want to improve acne and both that ingredients can do that. But obviously taking them together at the same time could cause problems with absorption of the medications. Zinc can also decrease plasma concentrations of many integrase inhibitors, which are not something you want to mess with because you're trying to block retroviral replication. And usually that's a pretty serious class of medication. So you don't want to do that. Um, that can also reduce the plasma levels and efficacy. And there are also potentially interactions with the other dirty boy of dermatology, which is penicillamine, of course. Very interaction of medication. That one can cause decreased penicillamine absorption. There is some evidence that diuretics can increase zinc excretion. So thiazide diuretics in the IBM Micromedics, actually how they did most of the study, generated results that showed potentially um, decreased zinc levels or increased zinc excretion due to the use of hydrochlorothiazide. And they were kind of interested to see that their evidence was conflicting on the use of furosemide on zinc concentrations, so that wasn't included in the table, but they wanted to use caution before using any of the above mentioned medications. And then providers have also need to be aware that diuretics can alter zinc levels as well as the clinical benefits. So there's a very nice table that they present um, here in the middle of the article. I think it's also important to remember that zinc and copper sort of operate on a seesaw. And if you increase zinc levels, you may accidentally decrease copper absorption and you may end up deficient in copper and vice versa can also occur. So thoughtful supplementation of both of those minerals in balance is important. Um, uh, heavy metals kind of don't like each other. So they're kind of like the heavy metal hair bands where they're a little bit aggressive and you kind of need to keep them away from each other. So iron also potentially has decreased gastrointestinal absorption um, in the presence of zinc and Iron can also decrease the absorption of zinc. So these heavy metals sometimes don't play very nicely with each other. Have you got any heavy metal commentary, Luke? Do you want to know the one way I use zinc, basically? Yes. For molluscum and warts, if parents really want to do something that perhaps might help, but is completely innocuous, I say, well, there's some evidence that zinc can help the body fight against viruses, and you can get it topically in diaper pastes. So diaper pastes usually have zinc oxide in them, so a couple that have the maximum, which is 40%, include desitin max strength and Boudreaux's butt paste maximum strength. So I say, if you want to put those on this wart or molluscum a couple times a day, I honestly don't know if it'll help, but it might because of the zinc, and it's certainly safe and cheap, so if you want to... That's an option. 
I love me some perioral zinc as well. So like, I tell you what, I had a patient that had really bad um, warts on the lips because there was a little child that was biting their warts, which is sometimes a problem. Kids sometimes get that, get in that habit and then they inoculate themselves onto their um, mucous membranes of their mouth. So this poor little kid had a couple filiform warts around the mouth, but they were still pretty young. And so I actually called poison control to make sure that I wasn't giving bad advice by saying to put the zinc oxide base near the mouth. And the, the people at poison control were quite lovely. And they said, really, unless somebody swallowed literally the entire tube, the worst possible side effect would be diarrhea. So it's, you know, very, very safe to use even in potentially higher risk areas. I also think about that if you have a small child and they have it on a finger because kids like to bite or suck on warts sometimes for some reason. So food for thought, but hopefully you don't need too much zinc oxide base. Um, so we will move on now to N-acetylcysteine. N-acetylcysteine is a nutritional supplement and is something we all kind of learned initially probably in medical school as that antidote to acetaminophen poisoning. Ding. It, oh yeah, sorry. It can be used in dermatology to treat a variety of things, including pseudoporphyria, atopic dermatitis as a broad anti-inflammatory, systemic sclerosis, and acne vulgaris has some benefits of um, treating also psychodermatologic conditions. Um, so trichotillosis, um, onychotillosis, people who pick or bite at parts of the skin or its appendages. There's um, some fairly decent evidence actually that supplementing N-acetylcysteine to, to sufficient levels can help improve the um, repetitive behaviors. And they have a fun term that they bring up called trichotilloromania. So, Trichotilloromania is the rubbing of the scalp with fracturing of the hair shafts coming from tiro, the Greek for to rub or I rub. So it's kind of like LSC on the scalp. So you've learned a new word today, trichotilloromania. Anyway. And if you want to learn more about the evidence behind its use in all these conditions, you can look at Dermosphere episode eight, where we discussed it. So really drug-drug interactions, N-acetylcysteine, as you may have heard in this song, um, N-acetylcysteine can enhance the vasodilatory effects of nitroglycerin. So that can increase side effects of nitroglycerin, such as headache or hypotension. A potential side effect that they don't talk about here, but I thought about, is that a lot of people who are exercise junkies and really want to kind of like hack their muscle building and stuff, take these supplements called a pre-workout. And a lot of these pre-workout things have nitrous oxide like releasing properties. And so people often who have taken these will experience like itching when that circulation really starts to happen. And I wonder if you had N-acetylcysteine on board and then you took a um, kind of pre-workout that had that nitrogen oxide release component, if it wouldn't potentially worsen the itching and maybe even lead to some hypotension or headache. It could potentially be different, difficult um, for a person to deal with if they were exercising strenuously. Um, there is some preclinical evidence that a metabolite of carbamazepine also may react with N-acetylcysteine in lowering those drug levels. And with a drug as important as carbamazepine, which can be used to control seizures, you definitely do want to be cautious about something that might modify drug levels of that medication. So it can be used for that psychodermatologic disorders. Um, you would have to make sure that they were not on additional psychiatric medications like carbamazepine, which is also sometimes used to treat psychiatric comorbidities before you would recommend that N-acetylcysteine. And they have a lovely tabular review of the different interactions of N-acetylcysteine here on the bottom of page four. So that carbamazepine and the nitroglycerin. So the nitroglycerin potentially enhancing the hypotension of nitroglycerin-induced um, vasodilatation as well as potentially headache and also potentially causing subtherapeutic carbamazepine levels. So I think they did a beautiful job in this article reviewing the important different potential interactions of these medications. And there are questions at the end of the article. Should we go over the questions, Luke? Uh, I think that our readers can look at those if they would like. They might be actually worth CME. That's a good point. We shall not answer the uh, answers to the questions, but they are contained herein and in the previous podcast. So if you would like to answer that potentially for CME, which I think it actually probably is offering that. Um, I thought that the questions were well written and I fully intend to pimp my residents with these well written questions. International Journal of Dermatology is where you can find the article and the questions. Well, that's all we have time for. So thanks again to all our guests. And of course, thanks to you listeners for hanging out with us. Today, we heard from Dr. Nisma Mujahid about environmentally induced skin aging and how we should all be wearing tinted sunscreen. 
We heard from Dr. Margaret Cox about a case report of Sirolimus 1% cream that seemed to be effective for carp. We heard from Dr. Beth Morell about lichen sclerosis. And we heard from Flava Flavonoid about <laughs> drug interactions with nutraceuticals and dermatology. Thank you, of course, also to our institutions. Thanks to the University of Utah for supporting the podcast. And thanks to Texas Tech Dermatology for lending us Michelle. And thanks also goes to Ryan Carlisle, medical student and social media expert who keeps our social media up to date. Yes, that's right. We are in this century. Barely. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can also find us on our website, dermospherepodcast.com, which has our entire archive and is also a good way to get in touch with us. And you can also find our entire archive on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I know we've mentioned an article a couple times about something called Vexus Syndrome. Um, we're not going to get to it today. Sorry. <laughs> if you were looking forward to it, well, hopefully next time. And we'll see you guys then. Hopefully they're not too vexed, right? Ah. Ah. Flavor Flavonoid out. <laughs>